Preston Spalding, Spalding Group President. I'm excited. This is a milestone. This is episode number 50. And you are an, on the owner-operator side. So this episode is going to be talking about what you have learned being an owner-operator and, and growing, scaling your business. And I've actually been connected with you on LinkedIn for a while. You used to create a lot of your own content, Balling with Spalding. So that was fun. So tell us where are you located and how, I guess, the size of your portfolio. We're in South Central Wisconsin. We have 1,800 units to date. And uh, we're in Janesville is where our headquarters is, Janesville, Wisconsin. But then we have properties, um, kind of Milwaukee, Madison, and South Central Wisconsin. So um, I work for an owner-operator. We have 3,700 units. And when I started, we were at 1,800. And there's very clear like milestones or moments that were transformative for me, where it's like, aha moments, completely changed the way I think about things or just learn something that helped me progress. So I'm curious, what kind of moments have you had as you grow your business as an owner-operator that have been those like aha or milestone moments that made you shift in your philosophy or the way you operate? There's been, there's been so many of them, Um, you know, but the, the couple that come to my head to start with are, you know, I used to have this issue of like, I would go and look at deals and I could not get past the fact of like buying something bigger than eight units for a while. Like this was like 10 years ago. Like I thought an eight unit, uh, uh, for $400,000 or whatever they were going for back then was just like this huge deal. And it was hard for me to wrap my mind around. And so my aha moment came when I, I realized I need to push my comfort zone. And so what I did was I imagined my comfort zone being a hula hoop around me and I was standing in the middle of it, average size hula hoop. I'm like, I need to jump out of this hula hoop as far as I possibly can and let the hula hoop catch up to me and grow around me again. Right now, my comfort zone's bigger. So I immediately went out and looked at, uh, it was about a $50 million deal. And when I did that, I'm like, I have no idea how I'm going to make this happen. But I put but that a was in. a 50 million. How many units? Uh, that was uh, back then. I can't remember the unit count. I mean, you're, we were a couple hundred units, I think, back then. I think it was like $140,000 a unit is what it would have been. So I, I don't remember okay. the math on it. I just remember seeing the price and how many zeros there were. And then when I put an offer in, I started to talk with our investors and like tr- started to reach out to other investors and new investors, tell them what I was doing. And that deal didn't end up happening. But my aha moment was, holy crap, I jumped so far out of my comfort zone. My comfort zone grew. And then the next thing that happened was the next deal we did was a $15 million deal, which was the largest deal I'd done you know, at that point in time. But the 15, prior to me going to look at the $50 million deal, the $15 million deal would have looked huge. But because I went out and really pushed my comfort zone on that $50 million deal, when I settled back down into that $15 million deal at that point, it was like, oh, this is easy. The numbers were so much smaller. So that was a big aha moment for me that that really comes to my mind when you ask that question. Okay. So for the company, uh, Sage, where I work, so I joined in 2018, 2015, I think was their first like institutional size acquisition. Um, I think it was, I don't know the dollar amount, but it was, you know, 400 plus units. And then the big moment for me was the, their second next, the next acquisition was in 2019. I was six months into the position and it was, it was a hundred million dollar acquisition. And I remember being like mind blown, but like the whole process and, and learning and really was like, aha. Uh-huh. And like, when you go through something that's difficult, it, you feel like bring it on. I could take on other things. Um, and we had the, the whole acquisition felt like everything went wrong. And we had another one that was like six weeks out. Um, so then, but going through those kind of really made me feel like I could kind of handle a lot and go through a lot on a personal level, and there was a lot of confidence in the company and as, as we shift. 
shifted. Um, what was a really aha moment was the way we do pricing. So we do price back then it was, I don't even want to say how we did it, but it was not very systematic. It was sort of like, we need a quarterly increase and it was not regularly. What have, have you had any aha moments or adjustments and how you price set your rents? And I guess also is, is how we set occupancy goals. So really, well, what we do for our, and this might be non-traditional or, you know, it might be archaic a little bit, but I mean, what we do is we basically are, you know, when we're underwriting a deal. I pretty much go in with, okay, this is what we need to hit. And I'm fairly conservative when I underwrite. And so what we'll usually do is we'll go in and we'll start at those rents. And then usually what happens is we get to a point where more people renew than we had in our projections. And when that happens, obviously, then what obviously happens is you start to fall behind because you're not bumping as many to market, right? And so what we do is every you know month, two months, three months, like every time lease renewals go out, we then review our business plan on, okay, this is what I've been, has been our renewal rates. This has been our actual renewal, like how many, what percentage are actually renewing. This is how many we thought in our business plan. So then we're constantly kind of adapting to be able to hit the target in our business plan. And so that's kind of how we typically will run. You know, we're kind of bottom up budgeting a little bit. And then like, what do we need to hit? And it's always worked for us again, because I think I'm so conservative on that front end when I'm underwriting rents. Um, you're looking at me like, what the heck? Does that, does that make sense what I'm saying to you? Yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm sorry. I... So, so, that's, so that's what we, that, that's what we do. Um, but we really pay attention to that because, so for example, we closed 372 units in May for 42 million bucks or whatever. And I love the acquisition because it was cash flow positive day one, but we did our you know, market study, we we're finding comps that they were 30% to 50% higher than what the property we were buying. Right. And so, but we were still concerned about those numbers. I didn't go right to those numbers. I wanted to be able to offer renewals that were still competitive to keep our renewals high, but I still, I assumed like a 65, 70% renewal rate, right? First month of renewals go out. It was like 92% renewed. Right. So now me in my head, I'm like, okay, now not as many are going to be going to market. We need to get our team on board with looking out ahead. And then everyone kind of our regional managers and everything, they submit what they think their adjusted renewal should be and everything. And what we do is just make sure it's going to put us on track to hit that year one uh, goal, essentially, or budget that we had in our budgets. So that's kind of, and we haven't been faced with issues where we haven't been able to raise the rents to hit our amount that we need. I think simply from the fact of I'm, again, I'm, I'm rather conservative in the amounts that I put out there in our initial underwriting. So I think that there's, a lot of parts of this business and what it makes it so fascinating. And I think a lot of times when people will segment things, they'll, they'll just look at rents versus total revenue, or you look at things in parts and you don't piece it all together. It, it has a, a negative impact. So it's interesting. And, and people do this. You, you underwrite and you're looking at rents, but instead of total revenue. So a big aha moment for me is we actually bought a property before I started. It was a 400 unit townhome apartment. Uh, mix and terribly mismanaged. We'll just say like average rent was a thousand and we were renovating and we were getting $1,400 of rent. So somebody yeah. was paying a thousand, we're not getting 1400. So when it came to room now, it was maybe 80% occupied when we took over. So now it's like, we're giving renewals. We're being very aggressive because, Hey, if they move out, we're going to get this 1400. But when you have 20% of the property that you need to lease, like that's a lot to lease. One person will pay 1400, but it's hard to get everybody like that much. And so we were pushing people out and, and that's where we shifted. It was like, we want to operate from a point of strength of occupancy. Let's hit our occupancy very quickly 
And we've adjusted our underwriting too, because sometimes we'll actually lower rents early on to hit that occupancy. And then we push forward. Mm-hmm. And, and because we've gotten good at that and we will take over a property that's struggling and we get it to a good place really quickly, we, it's adjusted. We're, we're actually able to be more aggressive on, on our underwriting. Mm-hmm. So my thought, have you had any moments where you adjust how your, your, your occupancy goals or your rental projects? Um, cause I feel like a lot of owner operators will get stuck like, Oh, we have to reno. And then they just kind of follow a certain mindset. I mean- yeah, I mean, our our big thing, I don't know if this is a mindset shift or what you're exactly looking for, but I think my mindset shift kind of came a little bit, maybe maybe a little bit differently. And, you know, in Wisconsin, at least I was I was ahead of the curve on this one. Um, and people tell me that now. Um, but when COVID happened, we were going through some pretty heavy, you know, remodels and obviously supply chain issues and labor issues and all that stuff hit. So then these other deals came to market and I'm like, you know what? No, I'm going to pass. I'm not going to go get that 60 you know, 1960s build. I'm not going to go pick up that 1970s build that needs all this, you know, $15,000, $20,000 lift per unit when you include exteriors, common areas, all that stuff. Right. And instead what we did is we went for things that were a little bit newer within, you know, built within the last 15 years that didn't need that heavy of a lift, but they'd really, the, the previous ownership group were not, they weren't managing it like an asset manager would and rents hadn't really moved. Like for example, the property that we bought in August is 460 units. Uh, we had 75 plus units that hadn't had a rent increase in three plus years. And the average annualized rent increase going back to 2015 was 0.65%. Right. So again, we positioned ourselves to be able to buy. So it was cash flow positive day one. We put long term debt on it because this was in August. So four months ago, uh, August 2022. Um, so it was four months ago. Obviously, rates were already going up. We were to lock in somewhere around like 4.6% interest that's locked in for 10 years. Cash flow positive day one. We don't have a huge CapEx uh, plan up there. I mean, it's they kept that's the one thing that the previous ownership did do a pretty good job of. He was a construction guy. I mean, he he kept really good care of his properties. Um, and so we're, we're going to be, you know, this spring is going to be a big spring for us up there. Um, you know, it's already been, we haven't had too many leases come due, you know, this time of year and stuff like that, but it's going to be a big spring and there's going to be huge, a huge opportunity to lift without having to do the huge CapEx. And so that was something that I was, I was doing over the last two or three years. And so what I started doing, you know, a year and a half ago, two years ago was I would actually pay a little bit more, like other people looked at me like, wow, you're overpaying for that asset. And this was again, early 2021. Right. And so we bought a deal early 2021. We bought it for 33 million. People looked at me like I overpaid that. We just refinanced that back in early summer and it appraised out at 44, 45 million because we have driven the NOI significantly. And it wasn't like a huge CapEx. It was just not being ran by asset managers, right? They weren't doing any marketing. They weren't pushing you know, rents to market. Um, and so that, I think that that's something that shifted in my mindset where I was always looking for, oh, this, this value add has to be, it has to be something significant with $15,000 to the, no, we don't have to do it. We're not, we're not going to go do it, especially in inflationary times. Um, so I think that was my mindset shift. It's interesting. I, I, I'm totally making up this number, but in, in our market, and we're based in, in Maryland, there's a lot of old school owners where they've owned properties for a while. They probably still have paper leases um, and they never want to sell. They don't want to do anything. Well, let's just say like 20% of the market is are these old school owners like and figuring out how to get them to sell, I think would be a gold mine. 
Okay. Same thing here. And like a lot of them too, you know, we buy 60% of what we buy is like off market up here. I'm connected well enough and whatever. And um, so what's driving them to sell now? uh, So I think now, you know, some of these people have just hit a point where like they've, they've, they're just done. They've been doing it for 20 years or 10 years or 25, 30 years, you know, whatever. And they're doing it the old school style where it's like, I would slam my head against a, a brick wall because they don't want any help. They don't want to have to pay the help. Right. It's like they're doing it all themselves along with maybe their kid and a nephew or, you know, it's very family where a place where you would normally have like six employees, maybe between a maintenance tech and some office people, they're doing it with just two, but because they have two, they know they can't push the rents because they still want to travel to Florida. Right. So they've just historically been a hundred percent occupied. And then we're buying in these markets that, you know, there there's been relatively, they're not growing like Miami has grown. They're not right. growing like Austin, Texas has grown. But you know what? They are growing 0.75% per year, 0.75% population growth. But there's been no multifamily built since 06, 07. And so we're, we're able to get in a position where it's just a supply and demand standpoint, right? And um, everyone, I've been able to get national investors start to actually look at some of our deals from California and Florida and invest with us because I've shown them over and over again, the deals we're bringing and like kind of those demographics and the numbers behind it and the why. And I say, yeah, you get all these people moving to, to Miami, but also look at what all you have coming on market too. You can't just look at how many people are moving to one area. You got to also look at what's also being built, right? And so that's what kind of creates our opportunities up here. So I, uh, are all your properties local? They're all in Wisconsin. They're all within an hour and a half to two and a half hours of each other. So, so we operate the same way. And I think it's been a, a competitive advantage because when you know something local, it's very different. And I think a lot of people who play this game or who win this game they, they're headline readers and they, they just chase, like, like you said, Oh, everybody's investing in Florida. Everybody's moving to Florida or Texas. So they just follow that. And being local, like you're able to build relationships with these old school owners and who weren't putting a lot of time and effort into operating better. And that's a gold mine. And I think that institutional buyers are not looking in, in Wisconsin. And I'm, I'm curious now, like how many, you know, on, markets are like yours where there's old school owners where there's properties that can really don't need a heavy cash flow i mean cash invested into it just just to be operated better and there are people just not even looking at those properties i I think there's a i think there's more out there than people realize um i also think so like what you said um the other reason on top of the things i just shared with you of why i've been able to get outside money, national money to come in and invest in our deals is because they, they also see the day one cash flows. They're like, this is, is this a correct number? Like, like, yeah, this is a correct number. Day one cash flow, you know? Um, because we didn't, we didn't go out and pay three cap, four cap for these deals. Right. I mean, we're, we're buying, which by the way, I think some of the people that paid three cap, four cap, if they're, if they are, or if they are not hitting their business plans right now, and if they're in a variable loan, like some of those might be in rough shape, you know, a year from now or, six months from now, whenever they need to refi. Um, we weren't buying three or four caps. We were still buying mid five, mid five at the absolute lowest. And that's for like a newer asset that's like seven years old um, in Madison, right? So, or in Milwaukee, um, but we were buying six caps. We were buying six and a quarter caps. So that, that obviously sets us apart a little bit too with how we were buying that. And, and again, finding these off-market deals and really getting entrenched in the communities. Like you said, when you're there, when you got boots on the ground, when you know the, the market and you know the people, you're going to be able to find a lot of these deals. And I, I don't know. I mean, I've started to see 
not institutional money, but I've started to see more national players at least look at Wisconsin. Um, especially kind of before now, I think more is up in the air. Now there's so many people just kind of sitting on the sidelines with rates and everything. But right before this kind of hit, there were definitely people from, you know, a, a group that has 70,000 units out in Washington. I mean, they, they're, they've, they now have like a thousand units in Wisconsin. They want more of a footprint. Um, there's a group out of Texas that they have, you know, a couple of tens of thousands of units that they're looking in Wisconsin and they're starting to buy up in Wisconsin. And so I think, you know, some of these Midwest uh, areas, they're, they're starting to be found. Um, and uh, I think something that we have out here in the Midwest that, you know, the coasts don't have is we don't see the huge swings like they do. Like, so we're not going to go when the times are great. We're not going to be red hot, like burning hot. But when times are piss poor, the worst of worst times, we're not going to be as bad as a California or a Florida will be. Um, so we don't You're steady those. Eddie. Yeah. Steady Eddie. Now we feel them. Right. But it's more of like this versus. Right. So. And it's funny that like it, that's very conservative, but for other people they'll see that as high risk because it's like it, it's not what everybody else is chasing. Right. But the thing is, is if, if you get compensated cash flow for that, right? Let's say let's let's call it two and a half times the cash flow, then what? Yeah. No, and your track record is in and that's the beauty of this business is like when you get good and you have a name for being good, you're gonna win more deals and people are gonna to want to invest in you. And it's 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 tough to get started and it's tough to get that momentum. But like it sounds like you have really good momentum. I'm excited to see you grow. Like do you have a roadmap of of where you want to get to in the next five, ten years? I mean, we'd we'd love to be at, you know, five thousand units by the end of next year. That was my plan. Is that gonna happen now with what's going on? I don't know, right? Um, but I mean, you know, right now we're just looking to double down on double down operationally. Um, you know, I, I, um, I think that we, there's a lot of things in our business, you know, we've been an acquisition company, right. The last three, four years. And so I think this slowdown is, is okay. Um, I still think there's going to be deals, but I'm not, you know, I'm also not concerned if I have to take three months to six months here and really dive into operations to kind of shore things up and do things better that we just never really got to during our heavy core acquisition phase. Um, so I'm, I'm excited by that and I'm excited of what then, how much more solid our foundation is going to be as we kind of spring forward into the next year, three years, five years, 10 years plus. Very cool. So to wrap up, um, we have some random questions, I guess. So do you have a book recommendation? Uh, I mean, I can plug my own book, The Sure Thing, uh, Get Wealthy in Real Estate, you know, so you can go to my website, www.justinspalding.com to pick that up. Um, my other, you know, I, I read a lot. I, I read a lot of books. Um, right now I'm reading a book that I really like, which is Michael Dell's book. And I can't even think of the name, but I just, I really love, um, you can probably find it and like put a plug for the Michael Dell book in here, but I, I I've enjoyed reading that book. I actually listened through the audio version on a, on a road trip and I'm like, I'm going to buy that book and actually read it. Um, so it's kind of one I'm going back through a second time now and actually reading it. But, um, that's a, that's a, is it? I can't remember the name of it, but it, that, that's a really, it's a, I'm like probably three quarters away from reading it now. And I've really enjoyed that book. Another one I'd say is King of Capital, Stephen Schwartzman. Um, I'm trying, it's not written. I don't think that one's actually written by Stephen Schwartzman, but it's all about Blackstone. Um, and that's a really good one. It's about how they founded it and everything. Um, so I think I'm trying to come up with books that maybe people aren't, you know, obviously I could throw out Rich Dad, Poor Dad and Grant Cardone 10X and whatever, but I feel like those are the common ones. So I'm trying to throw out a couple other ones that I really, really like that I feel like you don't hear about as much on podcasts. Do you spend more of your time on acquisitions or operations? And if you had to pick one to spend all your time on, what would you pick? 
Uh, so we, we have a couple of executives here and then, um, you know, regional managers and we're owner operator, obviously, like you said. Um, but that being said, you know, prior to these last couple of weeks or months, um, I've been 75% acquisitions to 25% operational. Um, and I would say right now that's probably flipped. Um, and like I said, I think over the next three to six months, that will stay flipped um, just because I think that we can continue while, while there's less deals kind of out there. And some people are just sitting on the sidelines. Like, I think this is a great time to work, still work people through the pipeline, right. To be able to buy their deals in six months or eight months, 12 months. But I think that this is really a great time for us with where we're at to be able to double down on some things that I've wanted to do in our company and operations for a long time um, to just, again, operationally be able to crush it with the properties we already have and in the future going forward. And last being a CEO of, guiding a ship into uncharted waters, right? You're at 1800 units and you're trying to get to 5,000. You've never operated a company that has 5,000 units. So what do you use as a resource or information, content, something to help you as you try to navigate? Uh, so our big thing has been trying to get the right structure, infrastructure, and governance, I would say, throughout our company. And so that's something that in the last like four or five months, um, I've had another individual come out from uh, New York and uh, he, he's helped us with other organizations that we've owned in the past too. We've known him for 15 years and that's exactly what he does. And he really is really good at systems, processes, identifying stuff. Sometimes I'm so far in it as an operator and as an owner that I, I, think, I think all operators and owners, you're so far in it that you can't, it's easy for me to give advice to other people but sometimes I can't give myself that same advice because I'm so far in the weeds. And so he's, he's great at coming out. We've had him come out like once a, once a month now um, just to help us again, you know, kind of go through, kind of go through some of that stuff and really prep our team and prep our uh, organization to be ready for that, that, that next shift. Cause as we start to grow towards that 5,010 and we just keep going, like there's going to be an opportunity here for people to move up in the org chart. Right. And so we need to, uh, get ready for that and be prepped for that. Cool. Well, um, I had originally reached out to you and you told me when I get out to episode 50, you would do it. So thank you for doing it. Um, this is awesome, man. I, I knew for some reason, I tell people that a lot, but for some reason with you and, and I never hear from him again. And then I started to see you post your stuff. I'm like, he's going to get there. So like, I wasn't shocked at all when I got the email from you and I'm like, oh, we must have been episode 50. And I wasn't shocked at all when I heard from you. Um, so that's awesome, man. And congrats. I'm glad to be Thanks. part of the show. Yeah. And uh, maybe in a year, we'll do like an update so you could tell how, uh, where you are on your journey to 5,000. Let's do it, man. I'm more than happy to, happy to do that. Thank you. You bet. Appreciate it.